You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, it says, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? That's as far as we're going to read this morning. Um, There is more to his comments to Peter, but we'll just read there for now. And by the way, the the word for the, the, the young people that are taking, possibly taking account, the word is hypocrisy. I, we didn't get into the bulletin, so we wanted to just let you know that. Let's, let's just ask the Lord to guide us this morning in the, in the study of His Word. Thank you so much, Lord, for Your Word. Thank you that it is our guide. It is our, uh, words that we hear from You. It is Your communication to us. And we pray that this morning, as we look into this, You will open our hearts and our minds to, to what You have for us to say and, and that we can learn from it. Thank you so much. We pray for Jim that You will heal his body and, so he can be back with us again. And for others, anybody else that might be away because they're not feeling well, will you pray for them as well, Lord? We know that their times are, are, are scary to some people because of some of the sicknesses out there. But we just know that you are still in control and you are protecting us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've often wanted to do this, and I'm going to take the the time to do it this morning. Before we go into these verses in Galatians, I thought it'd be good to just clarify just a little bit for some people uh, that are always hearing me make some comment about the Manhui and and about Paraguay. I, I thought specifically that I would just give you just a tiny bit of a background, especially for some of you that are that are new and and don't understand why I make those funny references sometimes. So I, I want to just give you that a little bit of background. Nancy and I first went to Paraguay in, in uh, Paraguay, South America, by the way. Some of you don't even know where Paraguay is, but it's right smack in the center of South America, a small country. And we went there under New Tribes Mission back in 1976. Now, the, uh, and we stayed there until 2015, so you can count the time. I don't need to tell you. But today, this mission is called Ethnos 360. Uh, it's still basically the same mission. They haven't really changed anything. The policies are the same. The 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 outreach is the same, and their whole uh, work is basically among indigenous peoples around the world. So they work in we call we used to call them Indian tribes. Now it's not polite, so we call them indigenous people today. But they are people that are isolated from cities, and normally they speak only their own language. And the culture and the language of these people is quite different from the national people. For instance, in Paraguay, we have the nationals, which are called the Paraguayans. 
they speak Spanish and they speak Guarani, which are two languages. It's a bilingual country. Uh, but the Indian peoples, the indigenous peoples, are quite different from them. They're actually, they speak their own distinctive languages. In Paraguay, there's 16 different languages. And out of the 16, only three are spoken anywhere else. Like Guarani is one that's spoken also in Brazil and parts of Bolivia. But 16 languages, and out of those, uh, 13 of them are indigenous peoples. And most of the indigenous people do speak only their own distinct language, no other language. And uh, it's changing a little bit because now some of those indigenous people are beginning to speak Spanish or Guarani as well. And that's because there's better transportation, civilization has moved into some of the areas. And believe it or not, most of those people have cell phones now. So they can actually hear the news and even though they don't understand it all. We entered the tribe of Mon the Manhui people in 1978. And we began living among them uh, after we had learned the Spanish language in the capital city. And when we got to the Manhui, we realized, oh, Spanish doesn't help us one bit because these people don't hardly speak one word of Spanish. So we were like babies. And we had to learn. We had to watch them. We had to, to take notes all the time. We had to, in phonetics, which we were trained in in our mission training, we had to learn how to make their language into a written language. And... uh like I said, Spanish didn't help us, so we learned phonetics and used that. And we puzzled over all the funny things that they did. We didn't understand them. We had to learn the language to ask them why they did the things they do. And believe it or not, they puzzled over us just as well. They didn't know why we brushed our teeth and why we slept in beds and why we didn't sit on the ground and why we lived in houses and were always hiding from them, they said. We found that later. <laughs> so that was some of the funny things, you know, and we had no idea in those beginning days that, that our job would be to take that language and write it down and teach them how to read, and eventually the Bible uh, would be translated. We would be translating. But God knew this, didn't he? He knew us ahead of time. You know, I could take hours. I could take the whole time this morning, but I can't do that because we are going to look at Galatians. But my point is this. God gets the glory for everything that was accomplished down there among those wonderful people. A church was established and the New Testament was translated as well as some of the Old Testament. But Nancy and I see ourselves as just tools in God's hands. Um, there were times I wish I could have taken some of the glory for it. And I used to think that uh, I had a lot to offer God and in, in the talents that I had. Well, God had to show me that it was really him. God is the one who is building his church among those people and not me, not us. I often just got in the way and had to learn. And speaking of building churches, I just want to let you know that uh, this was the the church is the people, but they also need a building to, to worship in, and a lot of people call that the church. Well, actually, uh, I got word from our son Jeff that a group of Mennonite farmers and ranchers in the area got together and decided they wanted to help the people and build them a new church. They had an old building that fell down, and they built them this brand new building, beautiful church, all brick, and that's what they're meeting in now, and believe it or not, it's packed. There's a renewed interest in, the, especially the young people, and they're they're all packing into this church twice a week to hear God's word, and uh, it's incredible. But anyway, I'll leave it for that. If anyone, by the way, is interested in knowing more background of uh, in pioneer missions is what we were doing, or is possibly even thinking of making a career change themselves, and uh, believe that God would like them to be a missionary, uh, you can come talk to me. I'd be I'd love to talk more about missions to you. Or they can go on the website of Ethnos 360, look it up for themselves. 
uh, if they want to know what uh, what it's more about. So let's go on to Galatians, and especially this chapter. The last time I spoke in, in August, we were talking about the great debate. <clears throat> That's where we were, where Paul and Barnabas went, and Paul uh, talked about the problem that circumcision would be if it was if it was kept in the church. And this was the conclusion, was that circumcision would not be preached to the Gentile people, to the non-Jews, because it wasn't needed, was it, for one to be saved. You don't need anything else. On a larger scope, that's the whole thing. We have nothing that we need other than God's grace, because it's all about him, not about us, is it? So the question was, did it settle the issue? Did it settle the issue? So now we're beginning this next section here. Uh, and um, at first glance, uh, I've read this over a number of times in earlier years, and at first glance it looks like this has nothing to do with that debate or about the gospel or about Paul's previous comments. It seems just like uh, there, was a, there was a conflict, okay, between Paul and Peter. And he just inserted this into this book for the Galatians to read about. And, and in fact... Years ago, I used to think when I when I would read this that you know that Paul he he was pretty arrogant and conceited to actually approach Peter who was one of the leaders in the church and a true apostle. Now, that was my thinking earlier. Peter should be teaching Paul. I used to think. However, as I begin to look into it deeper, I begin to realize that that uh, there's something very important here that we have to understand about the gospel message and why Paul was so adamant of keeping the gospel pure. So let me just give you an overview here, okay? What we have here is Paul's example of how anyone can become deceived when they begin to fear what others are thinking. And this fear can lead to hypocrisy and legalism. A person can preach one thing, can preach on grace, but then become living as if there's something else that needs to be added to grace. And we, you know what? We all actually do this sometimes in our own hearts. And this could happen with anyone that's of high reputation, like like uh, Paul labeled the other apostles in, in this previous section. Could even be a leading pastor like, like Peter was. So that's the overview. That's the kind of like the summary. And I wanted us to, to first look at that. And if, if Paul hadn't confronted Peter that day and rescued Barnabas, so to speak, the church might have looked very different today. So what is behind this confrontation is the very reason that Paul wrote the book to the Galatians so that they too would not be deceived. Uh, he wrote it to defend the purity of the gospel through faith alone and not, not any work. So I want us to think just a little bit about what exactly Paul was up against as we get into the details and unpack this. Paul was actually fighting what we would call False religion. And this would be thinking that you have to do something so that God will accept you into his kingdom. In a sense, it's, it's kind of like, I heard this illustration, kind of like making your own fig leaves, so to speak. And this illustration comes from a, a message that John MacArthur preached, and I really enjoyed how he, how he put it, an analogy of fig leaves. Paul, uh, John MacArthur said this, he said, false religion is the, it began way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Immediately after they had sinned, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together, he, he says here, to cover their nakedness and their guilt. 
This was their effort at covering up their sin and their guilt, trying to do something so that God would accept them. So, obviously, sewing fig leaves together was not adequate, was it? And so God had to do something else. Well, that's what John MacArthur, how he described it. So it was, he called it fig leaves. False religion. Sewing fig leaves together and creating our own righteousness. False religion. And, you know, this is a perfect example, too, of, of a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 64, 6 that says this. Uh, Isaiah was actually showing what man's efforts are like. He said, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That's the NASB. Another translation puts it this way. We are all like one who is unclean. All our so-called righteous acts are like a minstrel rag in your sight, O God. Now, that's pretty graphic. Uh, but it's a fairly accurate rendition of what this verse is, of how God sees our religious efforts like dirty rags. So starting in the Garden of Eden, God began the true the lesson of true religion, that man can do nothing about his sinfulness, and man can do nothing to gain acceptance before God. Only God can save us. This is why he gave uh, those skins, the animal skins, to Adam and Eve, to clothe them, to show them that only he could provide a way, a covering for their sin. And, and he showed them that something had to die. Something had to die. And that blood had to be shed. That was the point, the illustration. And as, as uh, we remember from some of Jim's passages in, in Hebrews, that this is exactly his point as well. Hebrews 9.23 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So God began this lesson with blood and with a death right there in the Garden of Eden. And this was the beginning of this very long instruction period, wasn't it? For around 4,000 years, going through the bloodline of Abraham, through, through Moses, through the, the, the covenants, through the laws, and reaching right up to the time of Christ. And it was about a sacrifice that had to be made. And it was about man, the inadequacy of man's efforts and it was about uh, the inadequacy of the first covenant, the covenant of law, and how Jesus f fulfilled and replaced it with the second sacrifice, the new covenant. Again, like I said, Jim has been showing us that. So this is the lesson of true religion by God alone without fig leaves, so to speak, without our own efforts. So you, as we study the Old Testament, we find that throughout this narrative of history, that there's only been two religions, only two religions. One is God's way and one is man's way. But only one is true, isn't it? Only one is true. That God uh, provided the way through Jesus Christ through the sacrifice and that man has to come to God by faith. That's, that's the point, believing that he alone can save him. And we know that this was also in the Old Testament was accomplished by looking forward to Jesus, whereas we look backwards to Jesus. And the other idea is a false religion, because it's man's attempt. And that's whether it was making an idol to worship, believing that that idol is God, or by appeasing the spirits, which is what the Manhui used to believe. Everything had a spirit. And so that's what they were trying. They were actually living in fear. You wouldn't really call it worship, but it was a fear. And that was their religion, so to speak. And they had to do what the spirits, what they thought the spirits wanted them to do. That was a false religion. It was the same thing. And then also the Jews. They falsely thought that their own efforts at keeping the law 
was what brought salvation. So not only all the Gentiles and the native peoples around the world were involved in false religion, but so were many of the Jews right up to the time of Jesus Christ and beyond because they thought that they could make themselves righteous by obeying the law, by keeping the traditions and, and doing good things, good works. So they missed the whole point of God's lesson, didn't they? And many people did through this idea of laws and sacrifices. To them, it was just we had to do these things to make God happy. So they missed the whole point that they were pointing to Jesus Christ. Sadly, there were also some Christian Jews, so-called Christian Jews, in Paul's day that thought it was still about keeping traditions handed down by uh, their, their forefathers in addition to faith. So what these men were also involved in was false religion. And many of the Gentiles, or excuse me, many of the Galatians were starting to get, come along with this too, starting to get confused. And that's why Paul wrote this book of Galatians. So I'm going to break it down into five sections this morning. Uh, the first one is an outline, is the summary in verse 11. The second one is the background in verse 12. The third will be the withdrawal and fear, verses 12 and 13. And the next one is the hypocrisy that came from it in verse 13. And then the confrontation, and we'll end up with that. So let's look first at the summary, verse 11. Again, as I read earlier, it says here, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, one question that I had when first reading this summary was, what on earth was Peter doing in Antioch? I thought Peter was back in Jerusalem leading the church with James and John. Uh, because this is where he was when you had this great debate back in the earlier section that we looked at last time. He was one of the main leaders in Jerusalem. And he had actually given uh, Paul and Barnabas the right hand to fellowship, it says there. uh, So they had approved of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, whereas they were going to go to the circumcised or the, the Jewish community. And we're not told in the scriptures when Peter went to Antioch. Or the reason why. But I, I think we can logically conclude that he probably did this because he wanted to witness with his own eyes what Paul and Barnabas had been telling them about in that debate. And as a church leader, he went there to confirm all that, that Paul and Barnabas had witnessed. However, this is only conjecture, so it's actually not important. But what is important here? What is important? Well, we're, we do have a recorded in this here that Paul had to oppose Peter to his face, it says here in this verse 11. He needed to confront Peter face to face, and this is important. And we learn this is why Paul had to confront him, because he was threatening to compromise the pure gospel message and the unity of the church. So he went to him to confront him. And now Paul was not just defending the gospel message here, but also, I believe it was to show the Galatians that he was a not an inferior apostle. See, that's part of the first two chapters of Galatians. He was defending also his ministry and his calling. Paul was not uh, inferior. And he had no trouble facing up to Peter, who was also an apostle and a, and a church leader. So that, And we also notice that, that Peter himself is not infallible. A, a preacher or a pastor also has, is just a man, just like we all of us are. He's no different. And so uh, Paul states here that because he stood condemned, because he stood condemned, and another translation says that he had clearly done wrong. 
And the third one says that he was to be blamed. So what, well, excuse me, what was the problem here? What was Peter doing that was wrong? So then we come to the second point, the background. Verse 12. To answer that, we need some more information is what this is. Verse 12 says, Paul says here, for prior to coming to the coming of certain men from James, he, or Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So Paul is giving us here the background in his narrative. It's kind of like what, if you ever watch a television series and uh, you, you get a little bit of the action and, and all of a sudden it stops and then you get now 24 hours earlier or now six hours or six hours or eight hours earlier. So it's kind of like that. We back up in the time frame, and I think this is what uh, Paul was doing. In the case of Peter, it might have been a day, or it might have been two days, it might have been a week. We don't know. We're not sure. But while Peter was there visiting the Christians, Paul says in the second phrase, he used to eat with the Gentiles, with the Gentile Christians. So for a while, Paul had, or Peter had no problem associating with the Gentile believers. He even was eating with them. They had their get-togethers, they had their potlucks probably, and they happily ate together, just like we do sometimes. They, they enjoyed each other, and they all were one big happy family. So there's nothing really special about that. Sounds just like us, doesn't it? But what was Peter going through? What do you suppose was happening in his heart? So for the sake of an illustration, and you have to bear with me here because it's kind of silly, but what if you had gone to church in another church, not this one, but in a, in a church, and all your life you'd been taught in your old church that you had to wear a white shirt and in all the religious services because white is God's accepted color. Okay? But when you arrived here at Kootenai Community Church, you look around and you see that nobody is in fact, I don't see anybody wearing a white shirt. Nobody's wearing a white shirt, so you're taught then in that in this church that the color of clothes isn't important to God. So you begin to wear a red shirt, a nice red plaid one. Now I realize again, it's a silly illustration, but just imagine now that all of a sudden somebody comes through the door and you recognize them as somebody from your old church, one of the elders from the old church. How would you feel? A little bit guilty, maybe? You used to think, I don't have to wear a shirt, but when somebody else comes in like that, you might get the feeling of being wrong all of a sudden. And I, I think that possibly this might have been a little bit of a similarity what Peter was going through when he was fellowshipping and eating. Maybe not, we don't know. Again, it's, it's supposition, but just for the sake of an illustration. We have to remember, though, what was Peter's background before? He had likely been brought up from childhood and taught that it was wrong to associate with the Gentiles. It was absolutely forbidden to eat with them. Both Levitical laws and Jewish traditions taught that God favored the Jews and that the Gentiles were unclean. So in order to be a good Jew, all his life, Peter had avoided any contact with the Gentiles. However, we do know also, if we know the story well of Peter, that there was one point where something had changed, hadn't it? Uh, from Acts 10, we were given the account that Peter had given a very 
had been given a very special vision from God to teach him that there was no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. So this vision was in preparation for his visit to Cornelius to preach the gospel, and Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a Roman. So in the vision, God showed Peter that nationality wasn't important, that all peoples are equal in God's eyes. And so he was learning also then that the church is an amazing example of this equality because all are one in Christ, aren't they? And that's where we are today. There's no difference between believing Jews or believing non-Jews or Gentiles or anybody else for that matter. We're all the same. Listen to what Peter himself says during that great debate in Acts 15. He said, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. That was Peter. Okay, and then Paul wrote later in Ephesians, and this is where we read earlier this morning, that um, in Ephesians 2.14, I'll just give that one verse where it says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So this was what Peter learned, and Paul also taught on it later in, in Ephesians as well. So Peter had been liberated from legalism. Peter had didn't have to, to worry about it. There was no prejudice for a little while. And he was able to fellowship and sit down with the Gentiles and eat with them in Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and the other Jews. Now, thinking back to my illustration, he was now able to wear something other than a white shirt, basically. And he probably thought that he could handle it for a while. But what changed? Peter states here in this verse 12 that certain men, quote, from James, showed up on the scene. Certain men from James. And now, if we remember from verse 9, James was one of the big boys. He was one of the preachers there, too, in the Jerusalem church where Peter had come from. So all of a sudden, in walks these guys, and they see him. And, you know, it wasn't that James actually sent these where it says they were from James, uh, because, but it was because James was a leader over the Jewish church, and it was kind of like they were from him, so to speak. But really, they were just from Jerusalem. And so we can see from this that some of the Jews still believed that there were, it was necessary to observe the Jewish traditions, and, and Peter knew that because that's where he'd come from. And in particular, these guys might have all also had a hard time with the Gentiles. And so here they come. They walk in, and Peter sees them. And I, I have a feeling his heart just sank. Oh, oh no, they see me eating with Gentiles. So this is our third point. What happened? What happened? There was a withdrawal. It says for a few days here, excuse me, here for a few days and weeks, he had been eating and, and worshiping and fellowshipping with these guys. But then it says here in the last part of verse 12, when these, these boys from Jerusalem showed up, he says, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing, fearing the party of the circumcision. You know, that's sad that Peter would begin to pull away from the very people he came to visit, wouldn't it? And it tells us why. It says here he was fearing this, this party of the circumcision. He was fearing those Jews and what they might think. He was afraid of what the men from Jerusalem were thinking about him, those that still had ties to legalism. He was afraid of the what they might think. 
and what they might think and what they might say. And so I'm sure he felt condemned. So what was it? It was a fear of man, wasn't it? Fear of man. And interesting, the scriptures do warn us about the fear of man. Uh, Proverbs 29, 25 says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who puts his trust in the Lord will be exalted. So when we begin to fear man, that is when we do it, when we're afraid of what someone thinks of us, it's like a trap. We get locked into doing what we think they want. And I see this again and again among people that I come in contact with. They're worried about what others think of them. So they dress or they act or they or they talk a certain way when they're around these people because they're afraid of what they might think if they say something differently. They're worried that they might not come across as good to these other people in the eyes of their in their eyes. So they're trapped by this fear and they act the way they think the others are expecting. And and I said as I said, it happens. I even find myself worrying at times. I even, well, before I got in this morning, I was worrying about what you guys think about me. Did I have the right tie on or whatever, you know? So we, we get into this trap ourselves, and it is a trap. It sounds foolish, but we all do it at times. We, we, we need to come to realize that we are only to fear God and not man. When we do fear what someone is thinking of, of us, it's almost like making that person above God. Isn't it? It's like putting them up as an idol and, and putting God down. We lift them up and we put God down when we're thinking, we're worrying about what they're thinking of us, and only God can release us from this trap as we recognize it as sin and confess it, acknowledge it. There's also the example in First Samuel 15 when Saul gave this interesting excuse to Samuel when Samuel asked him what he was doing and why he heard the bleeding of the sheep. If you remember the story. And what did Saul say? He says, I did it because I feared the people. He was afraid. Now, he disobeyed God, obviously, and there's more to the, the problem. It was also his pride, but he did fear. Another example, one that Peter himself, we see uh, from Matthew 26, and we're given in great detail that what happened when Jesus was had been taken to trial in the palace. And Peter followed behind and stayed in the courtyard, and he was approached by a, a, a maid, a servant girl, and then by the soldiers. And it states that he, he uh, denied Jesus because of his fear. His fear trapped him into denying Jesus. Thankfully, he was repentant of this, and he went on to become one of the leaders in the church. But fear of man trapped him at that time. I also think of an example when I was with the Manhui people years ago, uh, living with them, one of my friends, Latinis was his name. He was still a very young believer at the time, and he was asked by one of the missionary co-workers that we had there if he was done following the spirits, if he was done chanting and done trusting in them. And, and he told the missionary he was through, but we learned later on that he was still involved in shamanism, and the reason for that was because his wife was pressuring him to still chant over their grandkids. Yeah, I don't know. To me, that would be the hardest thing to, to, to live up to, was to, to be able to, to say, I believe in God and, and be consistent in that early, in those early days. So for a time, he was fearing his wife over trusting God. So he was trapped by this fear to go against what he knew to be false. He was still doing it. So see, fear 
of man is a trap. So back to Peter. I believe that what made this fear and withdrawal so sad that it was also the dabbling in the beginnings of false religion, trusting that works were what it was all about instead of trusting the Lord. He was implying that the Jewish traditions were more important when he gave in to those thoughts. He was acting off the idea that the traditions needed to be held up above the gospel and the new covenant. So in a sense, he was putting tradition and works above God, showing that he still needed to comply. There was another thing he was doing, too. He was also, in a sense, he was saying that there was two bodies of Christ. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And that was, that was heresy. And so this is why Paul had to deal with this. We also have another problem here that the NASB brings out. It says that Peter not only withdrew and separated himself. Here in verse 13, it says he also held himself aloof from the others. And in my understanding, that also speaks of pride, and that is sin as well. You know, I know that if I hold myself aloof from somebody, it means that I think myself as better than they are. And I wouldn't want anything to do with them. And I think this was part of Peter's problem as well. I think that's why that particular translation goes that way. You know, we can't trust or we can't judge Peter's attitude, but I do believe it had something to do with it as well. And there was some pride there. You know, when we feel that we're better than someone else, it is pride. It's so easy to slip into this pattern that we often don't even realize it. For instance, sometimes I'm, I'm out driving in traffic and I get cut off by another driver. Or I see somebody run a red light, and I, we've all seen it. I find myself thinking, look at him. I would never do that. I don't know if you do that, but that's what I think. Thankfully, the Lord and my wife <laughs> very gently brings me back to reality and reminds me that I do the same thing sometimes. So I have to admit that it is sin to think myself better than the other guy. As I said, aloofness is pride and very deceptive. All right, back to Peter. So if this had been just him alone, Paul could have gone to him in private and, and talked to him about it. But it says here that the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the results that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So we move on to our fourth point, that of hypocrisy as a result of fear. And we also see that there was a serious mob reaction here. It involved all the other Christian Jews who were there as well. Peter says the rest of the Jews also went along with him. They joined Peter in it, in the movement away from truth. And that's why it was serious. It wasn't just Peter, but it was all of them. Peter had caused a division among the rest of the Jews, among the church there, among the Jews and the, the Gentile believers. But most importantly, Paul labels this as hypocrisy. This is hypocrisy. This is what is what most versions use for the both of the Greek words. There's two Greek words here. One is, and I'll try to pronounce these, one is su, su, sunupokrimai, and the other one is hypocrisis. Now, hypocrisis is not hard because that's probably where our word hypocrisy, hypocrisy comes from. But the first word is a little different. In the King James Version, I got a, I found this was interesting. The King James Version translate this first word, supo, sunopokramai, as a, the word dissembled. It says here, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. And so this word carries the meaning of acting deceitfully 
and hypocritically in concert with somebody else. So these other Jews who had been converted to Christianity, when they saw how Peter was acting, they deceitfully went along with him and withdrew as well, even though they knew better, as did Paul, as did Peter, I mean. They were making a statement that it is now not okay to eat with the Gentiles, so it was deceit and it was hypocrisy. And why would it be that? Why would, why would this be hypocrisy? Because they believed one thing, but they were teaching something else by their actions. They were acting the opposite. In other words, Peter and the other Jews had first declared that their belief was the fact that there was unity in the church and what it should look like, and that it was, they were all one in Christ. But then when they went the other way, they began, Paul gave into the, or Peter gave into the pressure of those other newcomers, those circumcision guys. And by following Peter's example, all the others also were acting hypocritically as well. And even Barnabas, he says, even Barnabas was drawn away, who was Paul's good friend and companion. And he was swayed by their hypocrisy as well. And he began to go along. Everyone became two-faced, in other words. They were all saying, in effect, that the Gentile Christians were uncircumcised and not worthy to eat with. They were second-class people. And more importantly, they were saying that they still need to go along with traditions. They still needed to add something else to the gospel other than grace. It was a declaration of false religion. So do you see the full force of the problem here? That's what it was. So we have to have a confrontation. This is the final point. We can be assured that Paul couldn't let it go. So he says here in verse 14, When I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you are compelling the Gentiles to live like the Jews? And he absolutely could not let hypocrisy go on. He had to hit it right where it started, and that was with Peter, wasn't it? And he mentions all of them. Everyone was infected with this sin and this error. They were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Paul says. In other words, we know that the truth of the gospel is this. Christ abolished the law. He abolished the hold of the law. There's no more restrictions on what was clean and what was unclean because all men are now one in Christ. That's That was the truth of the gospel. But by his observing, again, the Jewish traditions and the laws, it was like them saying that there was no freedom from sin, no drawing near to God. Uh, and it was like they were throwing the whole truth out the window. And the unity of the believers was no longer valuable anymore. They were flip-flopping between legalism and grace, and this was hypocrisy. So Paul had to confront him, and he looks, uh, he had to look him right in the face, right in his face. He had to get in his face. As it says here, in the presence of them all. Not only was it just Peter's problem, it was the whole church's problem, all of them. And so he dealt with him uh, like you would deal with a, a person who has fallen away, uh, like, he, like Jesus taught there in Matthew, in Matthew 18. This was a public matter, and so they had to, he had to make it public, especially the issue of whether rights and tradition should take precedence over grace. So Paul's question to Peter was this in the, in the NASB. He says, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Now, 
there's a lot of implications in this question. And so I, I thought that I'd like to take it and paraphrase it just a little bit, actually quite a bit. <laughs> so saying it the way that I might ask it today if I were Paul, so that I can bring out some of the implications a bit more. And I believe that Paul was implying something like this. Look, Cephas, or look, Peter, he said, it's plain for everyone to see that you're a Jew. But when you first arrived here in Antioch, you displayed before all that you have the freedom in Christ to live like a Gentile. By your eating and your fellowshipping with the Gentiles, you are acknowledging that the Jewish traditions and the legalism have been abolished because of Christ. And that's good. That's good, Peter. However, more recently then, you begin to fear what the religious circumcision Jews were thinking about you, and you begin to separate yourself from the Gentile believers. You started holding yourself up as better than them. So you are making the statement that we all still need to live under laws and traditions, and that the Gentiles are unclean. By your recent actions, you are now saying that everything in Christ, everything that Christ did on the cross is in vain. You're also saying that the Gentile believers must adhere also to those very laws and traditions that you earlier said were of no effect. So, Peter, you are a hypocrite, said Paul in a paraphrased version. So that's that's the question. And, and I don't uh, find anywhere that we get a recorded response from Peter, though we do know a bit later that he did write uh, the books of his own books as well. He was... Uh, I believe he listened to Paul, in other words, and he recognized that he had been fearing them. He had been fearing his peers and the sin of hypocrisy and of pride. And I think he repented immediately. I really do. And I believe that the bond between the Jewish and the Gentile believers was restored in Antioch because of Paul's confrontation that day and the truth of the gospel. And so they were restored. So we come to the end of the confrontation. And then in the next few verses, the next passage, uh, Paul goes on teaching or more about this, that the believing Jews and the non-Jews are justified solely by faith. There are no traditions involved. But that's as far as we're going to get today in this second chapter of Galatians. But in closing, I wanted to, to just make a final application, something that I've been applying to myself as well. In thinking about hypocrisy and thinking about the fear of man, we need to ask ourselves, is there any hypocrisy in my own heart? Is there any fear of man in my own life? Do I fear what I perceive others are thinking about me? Or, or am I claiming that I am trusting God completely and I recognize him as sovereign overall, and yet I'm living in fear of something? Possibly do I live in fear that I might get infected by, by COVID or something else or that I might run out of money? to pay my bills instead of trusting the Lord, because he did say he would take care of everything, didn't he? Am I saying that I love my neighbor, and yet I haven't lifted a hand to help him? The list could go on and on, couldn't it? Because all of us have, we're all human, and we all have a sin nature still, and we all have problems with these. Folk, we are guilty of being hypocritical at times. I know I am. We need God's word continually in our hearts to reveal what hypocrisy is and what a lack of trusting God is so we don't fear man. And if it is, if we do find it, we need to admit it as sin, don't we, and confess it so we can grow and mature as the Lord wants us to. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.